The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We're recording this live on Thursday, February 18th on a beautiful rainy day here in Palo Alto, California. Of course, my guests will be joining me from all over the country. Uh, My name is Ian Fisher, and I'm looking forward to a terrific show today. Uh, We'll be talking with an admissions officer from the University of Georgia about the ins and outs of their admission process, and I'll be welcoming two of my college coach colleagues to discuss the ways colleges evaluate high schools and the process of financial aid verification. Now, there are a lot of really useful nuggets for our listeners today, and I hope you'll stay with us through the end of the show. Before we get to our first guest, though, I, I'd like to do a little housekeeping. If you're a frequent listener of podcasts like I am, you know the importance of rating and reviewing podcasts on iTunes, both as a way to show your appreciation of the pod and to help other listeners find their way to the best content. So if you download download, download us on iTunes on a weekly basis, or even if you listen to us live on the Voice America channel, we'd be really grateful if you took a minute to give us a review on iTunes this week. Uh, we'd really appreciate uh, your feedback and, and your help in, in getting this uh, out to a wider audience. Um, we're also looking to get more detailed feedback from our regular listeners about content on the show. If you navigate to getintocollege.com slash survey, you can answer just a handful of questions about our segments, our guests, and future content that we might be able to put together for you. Uh, We want to make sure our conversations are useful for you every single week, and your suggestions can really help us there. Okay, uh, house kept, <laughs> let's, let's start the show. Um, my first guest is Kelly Bird, Senior Assistant Director of Admissions at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Hello. It's great to have you on. Um, and University of Georgia was doing a little bit of research, a um, little bit of research, and uh, it's a campus of 35,000 students and about 27,000 undergrads. So really a, a, a big campus, big public institution. Um, just to get a sense of the scale of the UGA admissions process, about how many applications will you all receive this year for admission? So this year was actually a record-breaking year where our numbers had increased um, about about 10% over last year. I think we're shy of um, 23,000 um, right in the 22,900 area, but it's it's been a Fairly big year. Wow, that's 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 a huge number of students, and so that that fills uh, about sixty five hundred students in the freshman class. Is that about? Yeah, what you guys we're are right around fifty three hundred is what we are looking at to fill for the first year class. Interesting, interesting. So, when students are applying for UGA, um, 
when they're sort of going through the application. And do you guys use your, your own application? Do you go through the Common App? What system do you use? So we do use our own application. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So on that app, are students applying for a particular major, for a particular college? What sort of is the selection process when they're filling out that app and, and sending it off to you to review? So when a student applies to University of Georgia, um, they would select an intended major, but that intended major could also be undecided. Um, in our process, we do not consider an intended major um, as an admissions decision. Um, I guess research and history shows that you know a lot of students don't know what they want to major in or will likely change their major by the time mm-hmm. they get to those upper-level courses. So that's not something that we look at in our process. Yeah, and you, I'm over here nodding my head. It was, if this was a TV show, you'd see me just sort of nodding my head in affirmation. Yeah. I, we say the same thing all the time of students changing their mind and wanting to explore. What sort of freedom is there to explore on the campus at, at UGA? I mean, when do students have to declare a major and, and how, how much access do they have to subjects across the spectrum of, of different disciplines? Sure. Well, we have about 170 different majors and academic programs, so we feel very comfortable in having students choose to enroll and not knowing what they want to major in. Um, We have a lot of interdisciplinary majors as well as um, students double majoring, some even pursuing multiple undergraduate degrees and a master simultaneously. Um, So with 17 schools and colleges, there is a broad spectrum of what a student could choose from. Um, for those students who are coming in undecided, we have excellent resources on campus. One thing that is really neat is all first-year students are required to take this first-year Odyssey seminar. Um, these topics can range um, from one of the more popular ones is the science of chocolate making, where students study awesome. um, food science, but they actually taste chocolate as part of the class. Um, kind of smaller classroom settings, 12 to 13 students um, with a tenured faculty member, introduces them into new subjects as well as um, the learning environment on campus. So when do students need to declare that major? Um, depending upon the volume of advanced placement or IB credit that they're coming in, you'll typically see that maybe um, within a year and a half right around there, there a student will be moving towards um, a major of interest. Gotcha. Okay. Now, we often talk to students about, you know, for most programs that you're going to apply to, the high school curriculum that you're going to choose is relatively similar. You have, you've got your five academic solids, English, math, science, social science, language, and the classes you take if you want to be an English major are similar to the ones if you want to be a chemistry major or the ones you, if you want to be a Spanish major. Um, what sort of recommendations or maybe even requirements does the admission office at the University of Georgia have in terms of high school coursework? How many years in each subject? Um, So we are part of the University System of Georgia, which falls under our state's Board of Regents, where we are looking for four maths, four sciences, four Englishes, um, three social sciences, and then your two foreign languages. Um, Now, students who are very passionate about languages, you may see them taking multiple years of foreign language um, beyond that requirement. Same goes for science and things like that. You know, something that we truly value in our process is students to challenge themselves um, Mm -hmm. within the context of their high school. Um, So we definitely do like to see students to 
to really go above and beyond in those courses that they're choosing to take. Right, and that's something we talk about out here in California with students that are looking at the UC system. You know, there are the A to G requirements out here, and those are sort of the minimum expectation if you want to at least be considered for admission. But if you want to be competitive for admission, you might have to go a little bit above and beyond what those minimal requirements are. Um, so if, if you're not reading by major, um, are students that are interested in, in things like the STEM fields, are they... Is there any way that you sort of categorize them or look for them to have certain levels of science or math ability, or um, is it just come in and you've got access to just about everything? Well, when they're coming in, they have access to just about everything. Um, In terms of students who are maybe interested in the STEM field, you can kind of see um, by their course selection, maybe they are taking, you know, a you know, the the hardest level of calculus at their school, and then maybe they're pursuing outside opportunities beyond that. Um, You know, maybe an internship. There are things like that that I think we could see that supports an interest in that major um, to kind of back it up. Yeah, I I think that that makes a lot of sense, and it also reinforces this idea that even if you're applying to the University of Georgia, it's unlikely that it's the only place you're applying to. And so if you're applying to some other privates and other public schools, you still want to develop your application in a way that's going to fit a variety of different institutions. Um, And so some schools might want you to push up really high in science as a requirement to be considered for a STEM major. Um, And other schools like UGA might not be looking for that necessarily, but it still helps your application to show sort of a side of who you are and what your personality is and what you bring to the campus in terms of benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about different rounds of admission. And um, UGA has early action. Okay. um, But not early decision. Is that right? That is right. Gotcha. Okay. So how does early action fit into the process? This is something we're seeing more and more often from especially bigger schools as a way for students to apply early. I think some students see it as an advantage. Some students see it as just an earlier deadline that stresses them out a little bit. What would you say to a student as they're looking at early action versus regular decision? Sure. So our... Ours, both of our processes, early action or regular decision, I always like to start off by saying um, it's non-binding. So we definitely understand students are applying to multiple schools, and we are not um, binding them to to enroll at UGA. Um, Our early action is really more of a a quick decision. Um, It's really numbers. So if a student has very strong um, GPA, um, they're, they're taking um, very rigorous courses and then strong test scores. Um, that's where we really just look at the numbers for our early group. Um, after the early group, um, we admit students who are, you know, fairly academically superior, and um, then we move to deferring students for um, further review to look for holistic information. Um, so they can then submit their essays to us, a teacher recommendation, and we could review a deferred early action student along with a student who chooses to re- apply regular. Um, we do hear fairly often, you know, is it better to go ahead and apply? Is there any advantage? In mm-hmm. our process, there's absolutely no advantage or disadvantage to either option. Um, the only outcome is that a student could hear a decision earlier if they were admitted through early action. But potentially a, a student could not, you know, 
hear that decision earlier as well. So it's really something that I think the student wants to look at our previous year profile and kind of see where they're competitive in our categories of GPA, rigor, and test scores. Gotcha. Sometimes when I talk about early action with students, I, I, I tell students, if you're on an upward trend and your senior year, you're expecting your grades to be a lot better, or if your test scores are going to improve because you're going to take a fall or, or a late winter test date, um, it might be better for you not to apply early action. Would that advice hold true at UGA, or would you tell any interested student who can get their numbers together um, in time to apply early action? Um, well, we, we'll actually never advise the students. We really want them to own that decision for themselves. Um, now, a student in our process, if they are not going to be admitted, if they applied early action and they're not admitted, they would not be admitted regular decision. Um, gotcha, okay. To, to kind of explain, we, we had about 15,700 students apply for early action this year, um, and we you know, offered decisions to a large portion, deferred a large portion, but we only didn't offer admissions to right around 900 of those students, maybe a little more. Um, But but to be honest, we, we did review those applications just to make sure there was not something that we were missing. Right. So, so you're basically saying with that 900 that there isn't something that you would see in the period between the deferral and the final decision that would change your minds. Um, right. And that's Those just are a small percentage of we, students. We would encourage, you know, to maybe start somewhere else if they truly want to be here at UGA and look to us as, as an option in the future. Interesting. Okay. That's great. That's great information, I think. Um, now, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, this concept of demonstrated interest. It, it's something that comes up so frequently with families, especially juniors right now, because they're going out around the country, they're visiting colleges, they're starting to have college fairs come through their town. And I'm interested in, you know, demonstrated interest was really important where I worked at Reed College, which is a student population of 1,400 students. How does demonstrated interest play a role at a huge university like UGA with 27,000 undergrads? Well, I can't speak for other institutions, but it's absolutely not a factor in our process. So there, there's no... If I come and visit, it's great to see UGA and to, to see whether it's a good fit for me, but the institution is not tracking my visit in any way. Exactly. It would not have any dis- effect on an admissions decision. Interesting. Interesting. So um, you talked a little bit about holistic review, and that's, that's what you guys use as you're looking through applications. What are the, the, pieces of the, or the main pieces of the application at the University of Georgia? So we definitely want to hear about um, leadership in the application. How has that student um, been an asset to their community or their school? Um, Tell us about service. You know, have you had a part-time job? Um, They also will write essays in the process. um, and, And we're really looking for that intellectual curiosity. And if that student has, you know, really been an asset to that community so that they can bring that over and um, be a contributing student here on campus as well as in the community. Interesting. That's uh, So what sort of is the defining feature of, of students at the University of Georgia? How would you describe someone who's really successful on your campus? You know, that could definitely vary. I would say to start with, I mean, students have excellent grades coming in the process. Um, these are really strong students. Um, our profile has really just kind of been on an upward trend over the past five 
five to seven years. So we're really seeing these students come in with a lot of AP credit, great grades, um, and they've been leaders on their campus. Um, I think one thing that we re- really value, too, is, is context. We understand that every school is very different. Um, high school opportunities are different all over the country. So with our application, we'll, we'll have a counselor evaluation to get to know the academic environment of that student's school, what kind of opportunities are offered to kind of help paint that picture in their application. So you mentioned all over the country students coming from around the U.S. and, and probably internationally as well. Sure. Um, most public institutions prioritize their in-state students, uh, but we've got listeners all over the country who might be interested in a place like UGA. What would you say about applying from out of state? Um, is there anything that I should know if I'm applying from California or, or Minnesota, um, aside from the difference in weather, um, that would be helpful uh, as I look at UGA? We have an excellent climate here, listeners. Um, but <laughs> for, for in-state and out-of-state, we probably our number one myth that we have is that there is a quota for in-state or out-of-state, and that is absolutely not true. Um, we want to admit the most competitive applicants, um, regardless of their high school, their zip code, things of that nature. So we welcome California to Canada. So That's terrific. Do you have... Um, any sort of merit scholarships that are tied into the application that, that listeners might, might want to know about? Oh, certainly. We have um, about 40 different academic-based scholarships that we award throughout our process if a student simply submits an admissions application by December 15th, they will be considered for a lar- large volume of scholarships that we offer. Um, students who are um, very, very strong students may want to look into the university's Foundation Fellowship and Bernard Ramsey Honor Scholarship, which would require an additional um, scholarship application, but it's a very premier scholarship, and we have students from all over the country receiving that award. Great. That's awesome information. This has been really, really insightful. I, I wish I could learn even more, uh, but we're out of time for today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about University of Georgia. I really appreciate it, Kelly. Thank you. Uh, after the break, we'll be talking all about high schools. So if you or someone you know attends high school, you might be interested in what we have to share. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. 
visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. In addition to being one of my favorite people, uh, my next guest is also a former admissions officer at both Georgetown. I knew that would get you to laugh. At both Georgetown and Franklin and Marshall College, Karen Spencer, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ian. One of my other favorite people as well. So. <laughs> awesome. So we want to talk about high schools today, um, particularly how colleges evaluate high schools during the admissions process. And there's a lot we can talk about here. Um, but I really want to focus in on two ideas for our listeners. Um, first... Maybe this would come last in terms of a chronology. But first, when students are applying to college, how does their high school factor into the decision? And second, given that, when students are thinking about where to attend high school as eighth graders, rising ninth graders, how should they decide where to go? So that's what we're going to try and cover today. Um, I'll start with this question for you. One of the most common things that I get from seniors when they apply is something along the lines of, I go to a school that's really challenging or I go somewhere that's really competitive Will colleges know that when they look at my application? There's a lot of stress around this question. What do you say to families that are asking about that? Yeah, well, I get that question a lot. I bet every admissions officer gets that question, every guidance counselor, you know, that is a very popular question. And I say quite a few things, actually, and in different, in different regards. You know, the first thing I will say is generally colleges know who the really high-powered high schools are, right? That's kind of their job in the admissions office is to be as familiar as possible with as many colleges as possible or as many high schools as possible. So, you know, I live in Virginia, and even if an admissions officer didn't read Virginia for their university, I bet they knew that TJ, you know, was a very high-profile high school here, or you knew about Stuyvesant in New York or Harvard-Westlake in California or, you know, any other schools that are kind of like that. You know, most, most, um, colleges know of those kind of particularly high-profile high schools, um, and you know. But then, but then there's a lot of other ones that aren't you know quite up there with those. They're not you know the the, the super-powered high schools, but they're they're strong, right? And there's a lot of them. And you know, most colleges know that either by you know reading it from you know every year they send you know 15 applications, and just so you know from over and over reading these applications from reputation. And we can also look at a high school profile, which we're going to talk about here, I think, in a minute, um, to kind of also tell us a lot about a high school and, and what kind of opportunities there were at that high school and, um, you know, grade distribution and things like that. So that's, that's the first thing I tell them is that most, if you really go to a really high-profile high school, the admissions officer probably knows that. Um, right. The other thing I will say is that there are a lot of challenging high schools. I think it's easy, 
you know, you're worried about yourself, it's your application, your high school, and you can get this kind of very, um, you know, very focused view on and, and your own situation. But the thing I would try to remind students is that there are high-profile high schools everywhere, and there's lots of them. Um, so, again, I live, in, you know, I live in Fairfax County, Virginia, probably considered one of the more notably strong school districts in the country, so I get this question a lot. But, you know, people forget that every major city has those counties or areas with a lot of strong public and private high schools. So, in other right. words, there are other counties like Fairfax County all over the place, yeah, um, and, I, and I think it's I would easy say- to forget that. Yeah, I would say every meeting that I have with a family out in Silicon Valley, they tell me the name of their high school, and then they say it's really competitive. And I would say everybody I've talked to today who's gone to a different high school says a similar thing because the schools out here happen to be really competitive. Um, And, you know, you sort of touched on the idea of being a managing a region or a territory as an admission officer. You know, today on our college coach list, somebody just sent out an email and said, what are the strong schools in Texas? And about five of us responded with schools that we had read applications from, you know, 10 to 15 different schools. So admissions officers from colleges all over the country, they get to know the high schools in a particular area, and they have a good sense of what those schools bring to the table in terms of strength of their applicants. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the school profile. You mentioned that. Um, What's the school profile? If I'm a parent, how do I get my hands on one? How does it sort of provide an assist in the process for a student? So the school profile is this little-known um, two- or three-page document that exists at almost every high school in the, in, the, in the United States, and yet I bet 1% of parents know it exists, and the 1% of the parents are all the parents who talk to us because <laughs> to go right. tell them to go get it. Um, yeah. Every high school has one of these, like I said, two- or three-page document, and it's like a little snapshot of your high school, and it's going to be stapled to your child's transcript when they apply to college. And it's a little, it's like a little guide for the admissions officer should they not be familiar with your child's high school, which, let's be honest, you know, like when I worked at Georgetown, I read 1,500 applications every year from six different states, right? There are a lot of different high schools in there, and yes, I knew New Trier in Chicago, but did I know about, you know, 25 of the other ones that came from the state of Illinois that sent us one application? No, I probably didn't. So the, the school profile allows me to see things like what the grade distribution is, um, how many APs are offered, what they're offered in, um, all sorts of things that can be really helpful to an admissions officer when they're trying to evaluate a student in the context of their high school, which is really the whole point of the school profile is to say, here's what our school looks like, and so you can evaluate the student more, more effectively. Yeah, and, um, and there, there are a lot of really helpful things on there. I think one of the, it, they usually will say the percent of the graduates from the high school that go on to two-year institutions and the percent that go on to four-year institutions, the percent of students that are on free and reduced lunch. Um, again, the, the AP classes, there's a lot of really interesting content there for an admission officer. Exactly, and I think one of the, the things that's used most often, and I think parents don't um, know this is that most a lot of high schools I think are really getting away from ranking students and but a lot of these high school profiles will say we don't rank our students but if we did right and then there's going to be this you know you know the top ten percent of our class uh, you know senior class had between a three point eight and a four point two or whatever it says right so this allows us to see what your GPA which by itself is not a particularly helpful number I tell people that mm-hmm. all the time which is always kind of surprising to them but what what does that what does that number mean in the context of your high school because, you know, if you're at a place that has a lot of great inflation, your 3.8 might only put you in the middle 50%. 
that high school profile is going to tell me that. And I do think that sometimes why I have found high school guidance counselors to be a little cagey about giving out a high school profile. It's always interesting when I tell a student to go get one. Um, a high school, you know, the guidance counselors a lot of times kind of seem a little like, oh, I don't really want to hand this to you. Um, but I do think that's wise because then they're going to, you know, think, oh, my gosh, this admissions officer is going to know that my 3.8 doesn't look nearly as good as it sounds um, once you look at this context. Right. The context is, is so important. And, and sometimes I have students that come to me and they say, I don't want to take AP micro because nobody gets an A in that class. And I'll say, well, if we have the grade distribution in the profile that tells us, then, then maybe somebody is getting an A in that class. And so whether it's a hard class, absolutely, and everybody's GPA suffers because of that class, or whether you're just sort of, you think it's hard because it's hard for you, is a difference. Um, and the profile can often shed some light on that particular fact. Um, now, sometimes parents and students, they'll, they'll say, you know, I would be competitive for this school, but I'm really worried about you know, student X, student Y, and student Z who are at the top of my class also applying to that school and that potentially affecting my chances of getting in. Um, to what degree do colleges, the ones that you worked at, we, I know we asked the team about this, but how much do they think about the other students applying from a given high school when they're making a decision about a single applicant? You know, they do and they don't. You know, ultimately, uh, a student is always competing against the kids from their high school and every other applicant, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's really the reality. Um, it's not kind of an either-or scenario. Schools sometimes read in school groups. Others don't. So as, you know, you just mentioned, you know, we polled our colleagues yesterday and asked, you know, when you worked in admissions, did you read in school group? And by that we mean... Did you read all the applicants from one school all at once? And so, for example, at Georgetown and at FNM where I worked, we did. So I would, you know, 65 kids applied from New Trier High School in Chicago to Georgetown every year. The fact that I can remember this 13 years later is slightly disturbing to me. But, yeah, we had about 65 (laughs) applicants. And I would read them all at once. That was our directive. So we could read them all in context and understand what they looked like in comparison to each other. Now, were they being read against the kid from California and the kid from, you know, Wyoming as well? Of course they were. Um, But we're really reading in school groups. So I would say a lot of schools do that, but we learned yesterday, you know, from pulling our colleagues, a lot of high schools don't. Some read in alphabetical order. Um, yeah, that's one of them did, which kind of surprised me. Um, you know, some read and just as, as they're complete, right, because all applications are getting completed at a kind of a different um, kind of a rolling process. Um, so I think the thing is, yes, we're going to see um, and make sure that at the end, whether we read in school group or not, that our decisions make sense. And by that I mean if eight kids apply from a high school and we didn't take the first five but we took number six, we want to go back and figure out, why did we take number six and we didn't take the top five? Does this answer, does this make sense in the larger kind of grouping of things? Um, and, and a lot of times there was a reason for it. Maybe number six was a recruited athlete. Maybe number six was, you know, a friend of the president. You know, you never know why number six got in and the top five didn't, but there better be a reason. Uh, we want our answers to make sense in context. Yeah, and at Reed, we actually, we didn't read in school group except for a handful of very specific schools that we wanted to give that attention to. Um, but we always tidied up our school groups and sort of what we called it at the end of the process to make sure that we didn't have an aberrant decision within that particular group. And so what that was really about was being able to go back to a high school counselor who might say, you know, why did you take Johnny when these other three kids were much stronger academically? And if we could say, 
well, he visited, he wrote a better essay, his extracurricular involvement was better, then that shows us that this is something that we prioritize as an institution, and that gives an insight to that counselor about what it is that makes for a good applicant to our particular school. So there's sort of education that's happening from an admission officer to counselors at schools about the kinds of applicants they're looking for if those school decisions don't necessarily um, look like they make make sense from a numeric point of view. Exactly. I think I told Um, you today earlier, too, like we had a student at Georgetown once who was hands down the best academic student from a high school but had done literally not one extracurricular activity, not a one. And I even called the guidance counselor to make sure that was legitimate, like, I'm not missing anything. You didn't forget to fill in this page. She's like, nope, doesn't do a single thing. And so that was good to know, and it was important to us that a student be engaged outside of the classroom. So, you know, that definitely came up in the committee discussion. Right, and, and so it's an indication that numbers always tell part of the story, but just like looking at that Navion scatter plot and saying, this means I'm going to get in because I have a higher, you know, plot point than these other people who got in, that doesn't always mean that it's going to be the case. Correct. Um, And that brings us sort of to the second part of this conversation, because I think probably a lot of families are out there, maybe whose students are in middle school, they're thinking about high school, they're hearing this conversation, they're thinking, oh, how does this affect sort of our decision about where to send our kid for high school next year? Um, And we get a lot of questions about that. What's the best high school for my child to go to um, from families that have the flexibility to consider multiple options, whether they're multiple public options or a private option? Um, high school rankings come up more often than I would like them to um, when I'm talking to a family. What, what do you think about high school rankings? Do you pay any attention to them? Do you know what they are? Where to find, like, what's your thought I, on those? I pay about as much attention to high school rankings as I do to college rankings, frankly. But, um, so that'll explain, which is to say not a whole lot. Um, I think, you know, I would say the same thing about high school rankings as I would do about college rankings to some degree, um, is that this is somebody else's criteria, right? Why would you want to make a decision about somebody else's criteria, right? And I, I use an example all the time that I steal from our colleague Steve, who I'm quite sure got it from Malcolm Gladwell, I believe, but it was saying, you know, how do you compare which is a better car? Is it a Honda Odyssey minivan or is it a Porsche Roadster? Well, what is it you needed to do for you, right? If you're me and you have three small children and a 75-pound dog and you have to go on road trips to see your in-laws and your family very often, the Honda Odyssey is a much better choice for me, right? That doesn't mean the Porsche is a bad car. It's a bad car for me. It doesn't fit my needs, right? If I'm a 35-year-old divorcee looking for a date who lives on the Pacific Coast Highway, I think you want to go with the Porsche Roadster, right? Honda Odyssey is not going to get you a lot of dates probably in that neck of the woods, right? That's not, it's not serving your needs or your goals, okay? <laughs> right. So it doesn't mean that the Honda Odyssey is a bad car. It's a bad car for you. So that's what I always tell students. And I always say, don't let somebody else's criteria dictate what's important to you. What are your criteria? You make your own U.S. News and World Report criteria. You make your own, you know, booklet of here's the things that are important to me. And then if you have the resources and flexibility, which, frankly, not a lot of people have, to actually pick a high school and you have options in that regard, then see which one of these options fits the criteria that you've deemed important, not that somebody else has. Yeah, and and rankings are based on things that are easily quantifiable. Number of APs, 
um, where students go to college, average test scores, scores on state tests, you know, things that are looking at, at um, the performance of students within the classroom and, and the effectiveness of teachers. Um, those things don't always get at the culture of a school, the quality of a performing arts program, um, the availability of certain sports teams, different things that can really enrich a high school experience that can make a student look forward to going to high school, which is not always the case for high school students. That can make a huge difference in the application. So, you know, it's not just a matter of sort of finding the list, looking at what's at the top in your neck of the woods, but really thinking about what is the best sort of fit for my particular student. Exactly. Um, now, there's, we get the most common question that we get, I think our most listened to show here um, for getting in is, is it better to get an A in a regular class or a B in an honors class? And there's a version of that question that is that applies to high school selection. Um, is it better for me to go to a weaker high school where I can be at the top of the class or a school that might be much stronger where I might be closer to the middle or you know maybe in the top 25%? What's the better choice? And is there an answer to that question? There really isn't. And I get that question all the time, as I know you do, and I'm sure everybody else does as well. And I always tell stu- you know, families and students, this is really kind of a draw. I said, because if you go where you can really kind of stand out in the crowd, right, so you go to maybe not as high profile of a high school, maybe a slightly weaker high school academically, you're not getting that bump in the admissions office because from, for your high school, right? Because we think, well, that A at your high school may not have been that hard to come by, right? So maybe we're not giving you that bump in, 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 in thinking how hard it was to get through, you know, get to that A. On the flip side, it's easier to be a big fish there, right? So if you can really excel, it's easier to rise to the top. On the flip side, if you go to a very high-profile high school, you're getting a bump in the admissions office because that A, we know you had to really earn, and it was hard to come by. On the flip side, it's hard to be a big fish. It's hard to stand out at that high school. So I really do believe it's a draw. I think we really expect, and, and the best advice I give to students all the time is, I want you to make the most of where you find yourself, right? A lot of students don't have a choice in where they pick their high school, right? You've got to go to your local public high school, and that is what it is. Um, so make the most of where you find yourself, right? If you go to a high-profile high school, do the best you can. You go to a less well-known high school, do the best you can. Like, the, the advice is still the same. Um, and I do think in the admissions office, um, it, it really ends up being kind of a draw. Right. And it's a, it's a matter of also educating yourself about the context of your particular high school. And so that means if you're a ninth or 10th grader and you can get your hands on that school profile, that might help you to see, you know, based on your performance where it is now, how that's going to read in conjunction with that particular profile. You can look at what kinds of advanced classes are being offered and make sure that you're taking ones that are challenging you within the context of your school. So know your institution, take you know, the most advantage of your high school as you possibly can, that's really the way, I think, to make the most of, of the high school years. Um, Karen, thanks for all your time on this. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yep, watch out for those last few remaining inches of snow in D.C. I will. Hope they don't get you. <laughs> Bite your tongue. Um, <laughs> after the break, we'll be talking all about financial aid verification with another of my college coach colleagues. If you're in the process of applying for aid now, you won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Great. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Um, Our scheduled guest for this next segment, Tara Piantanita Kelly, was supposed to join us today to talk about financial aid verification, but she had a nasty spill in the icy Northeast yesterday, and so she's sitting at home in bed with a broken ankle. Um, We want to say, get well soon, Tara. We hope you're listening. Um, fortunately, our financial aid roster is deep and full of talent, and I'm excited to welcome Beth Feinberg-Keenan back to the show, albeit under inauspicious th- circumstances. Uh, thanks for joining us on, the short, on such short notice, Beth. Thanks, Ian. Happy to be here. Glad you're here. So, Beth, as with many financial aid topics, I was just telling you in the break, um, the pr- process of financial aid verification is something that I know nothing about, uh, aside from what you just told me. And so I get to learn right alongside our listeners today, which is great. Um, Fortunately, you were a former senior financial aid officer at Northeastern for a number of years. And so you have a good grasp on this topic. So let's start just with something really simple to help um, our listeners and and me figure this out, which is what is verification and why would you be selected to have your financial aid information verified? So I think in simplistic terms, Ian, you know, it's really just part of the financial aid process, and you know, families really, there's really nothing that they can do from being, you know, preventing from being selected. And a lot of families get very concerned of, oh my gosh, I did something wrong. What does this mean? So just to clear the air, families, you haven't done anything wrong. So to get selected, it's somewhat of a random process. Thirty percent of the financial aid applicants, or about thirty percent of the financial aid applicants, automatically get selected for this process called verification. Some st- some schools do 100% verification. So 
maybe you're attending one of those schools that verifies all of their admitted students or all of those students that they are awarding financial aid out to. And then maybe there's some type of discrepant information. Something just isn't looking right to the college. So the college is trying to resolve that information. You know, I look at it as, you know, the school is responsible for making sure that the information that is provided, you know, is really matching the information that was submitted on the FAFSA. So, again, they're just making sure that they're doing their due diligence to, you know, for their own institutional money as well as the federal, state uh, financial aid dollars that are being awarded out to students. And, you know, there's certain things that they're looking at. So if you are reporting assets on your financial aid application and the college happens to have a copy of your taxes, and they say interest income or dividend income that doesn't necessarily match uh, the reported asset value. They may be doing a little bit more digging and wanting to verify that information. Or you know, they want to make sure that both parents and or students are filing taxes who are required to file taxes and that they're filing correctly. And a lot of things that I used to see in a financial aid office is that we had you know, married parents and they're both filing taxes separately, but they're both filing married, married head of, sorry, filing um, head of household. So we had to go back and kind of resolve that and figure out what was going on. So we're just, again, doing due diligence and making sure that information is correct uh, before finalizing financial aid packages and awarding financial aid out to uh, students. Gotcha. So when I hear financial aid verification, it's, it, it gets a little scary. And so um, it's not something like a, a tax audit it's, it's maybe happening at 100% of schools. It's not like I did something wrong and they're coming after me. I, it's just a part of the sort of natural process in financial aid at most institutions. Exactly. Uh, great. Um, so what kind of documents are colleges looking for me to submit to their financial aid office through this process? What, what, what are they going to ask me for? So the first document that they really want to look at is they really want to verify your, your income information. And, you know, easy way to get around having to provide any type of additional documentation regarding your income is to use something called the IRS Data Retrieval Tool. And this is a tool that you can use to update your FAFSA. And in most cases, if you're able to use the IRS Data Retrieval Tool, no other documentation is required. For families who file their taxes electronically, you know, they would be able to update their FAFSA using the IRS data retrieval tool about two to three weeks after they file their taxes. And those families who decided to do the old, you know, paper form uh, for your federal taxes, it might take upwards of eight to ten weeks before you'll be able to use this IRS data retrieval tool. But I look at this as kind of like it just saves so much time because if you don't use the IRS data retrieval tool, then you have to get a copy of your tax transcript, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, to send to the school to verify the income information. Most gotcha. schools may so, so have also an additional form, like a verification document. Schools are either going to provide a link to families, it's going to be available on their websites, that families are going to be able to complete this information and send it, you know, send this one page or one page front and back document uh, to the school. It might be something they can just submit online. Now, gotcha. the other thing that families should also be aware of is information is not only needed for the parents, but it's also needed for the students. So they're verifying both student and parent information. And the parents' information that they're verifying are the FAFSA family. So if it's, um, you know, one parent filling out the FAFSA because it's a divorce separated situation, it's just that, that parent's information. If it's a married couple or, you know, mom and dad living together in the, in the same household, then again, they want 
that information for both parents uh, sent to the college. So again, gotcha. you want to make sure that you know what forms are required and you know, send what's asked of you to the school and nothing additional. You know, I always say to families, if the school didn't ask for it, don't send it. So you mentioned a tax transcript, and I know all about tax returns and, and how to get those, but what's a tax transcript? How do I get one of those? So a tax transcript is really a document that verifies your income. It's a detailed statement of your tax return. And the best way to get it is you actually have to contact the IRS. So there's a couple ways that you can do it. Is you can go online under the IRS website and you can request it online. You can call the IRS via the phone or there's also a paper form to request this, um, this tax transcript. It could take a little bit of time. I'd you know, just allow a little bit of time for processing. A number of colleges I know, like again, when I worked at Northeastern University, we had a link on our website that families could go to and link directly to the website for the IRS uh, tax, for the tax form That's or nice. tax transcript. Colleges are not able to accept copies of your 1040 as part of the verification process. So you have to make sure that you have the tax transcript, which is a detailed line-by-line itemization of every single um, of all the information that is on your taxes that you submitted. So at what point in the process does this happen? So you, you submit your financial aid application, you meet that deadline, you've already applied to the college. When are you being selected for verification? Does it happen right away or is the turnaround time a number of weeks? Um, when should I be prepared to get this notification if it comes at all? So I guess it really just depends so if you're one of the, I want to say, lucky individuals who is part of the about 30% of the families who get selected for verification, you're going to know at the time that you submit your FAFSA because they're going to tell you that you've been selected for a process called verification. If you're, okay. if you're applying to a school that does 100% verification, again, you're going to know in the beginning because that's going to be part of the financial aid application process. If you are an individual who the college is reviewing the information that you've submitted and they're trying to verify some type of discrepant or um, inconsistent information, they're going to send you uh, a little, they're going to send you a request a little bit later in the process when they're starting to review their fi- the financial aid applications. So it might be, you know, a month or so down the line. So if you're f- submitting you know, the FAFSA and we'll say, or maybe the CSS profile, the school has a February 1st, a February 15th deadline. You might not find out that, you're, that the school is asking for more information maybe until beginning of March, maybe a little bit later. It just really depends mm-hmm. on when the review process is. But gotcha. those schools that do 100% verification, they're going to have that on their website. That's going to be part of their financial aid process. They're going to put those deadlines when they want that information submitted, um, Two schools. I was just working with um, a cousin, as I say, yesterday, and their daughter was accepted to Claremont McKenna in California, and they're submitting all of this documentation right now to the school, but they were concerned about deadlines and making sure that they had everything done in a timely fashion, but they knew that outright that Claremont McKenna requires all this information for all students who are planning to attend. Gotcha. Okay. So, so I've, I've been notified that I've been selected for verification, whether it's automatic, whether it's something I hear later on down the road. I, I get it all together. I've got my tax transcript, whatever the school asks for, and nothing more. Um, how long does it take the college to process this information? When should I hear back from them about sort of the final, I don't know, discrepancies being ironed out? So typically, 
colleges, I would allow them at least two to three weeks to review the information once you've submitted it. During peak processing time, you may say, well, what's peak processing time? I mean, it's different for admissions versus, you know, college financial aid. So yeah. peak processing time would really be that March, end of February, March time frame where colleges are getting lots and lots of documentation. So it could take longer. It just really depends on the number of applicants that are being verified. I was looking up some schools. They were stating on their website, some of the University of California schools, that it's taking up to six to eight weeks to complete the process. So it just is really school-specific, depending on the number of students that they're verifying and the volume, you know, the volume and the time of year. But I would plan for a couple weeks. The other thing so, that could happen is when they're completing the verification process, there could be additional questions, and there's a possibility that the school could even go out with additional requests asking for additional clarification or additional documentation to clarify something else, too. Gotcha. Okay. Um, a lot of the words that you're using here, the, the FAFSA, income, these are things that are triggering for me that this is a need-based financial aid. Does this affect scholarship offers in any way, the, the sort of um, recruitment aid that colleges sometimes offer? This does not affect recruitment-based financial assistance. The recruitment-based financial aid that was offered to a student isn't based upon the family's ability to pay, and right. that was offered at the time of admission. So the result um, of verification should not impact any type of merit-based or recruitment-based scholarships that were offered to the student. So what does it do? How might it affect maybe an estimate or an award that's based on financial need? Does it change what you may have qualified for based on that update, or how can it be adjusted? So keep in mind that the information that was submitted on the FAFSA is used to calculate that expected family contribution and the information that is being verified as FAFSA information. So if there are any changes to the information on the FAFSA, it ultimately could impact that expected family contribution. So in the end, if it goes up or down, there could be some type of change to the financial aid package. For families who are selected for verification, if the, if the school does go out with a financial aid package prior to verification being completed, that's a tentative pending verification award. So at the time that verification is completed, the college will let the family know if there's been any type of change to that financial aid package by releasing a finalized offer financial aid. Don't ne- those offers don't necessarily come via mail initial offers might come via mail. So you're also going to want to make sure that you're checking online if there's any updates to the financial aid packages that were initially offered as, again, tentative packages in the beginning. Sounds good. One last quick question. What happens if I just, if I don't want to do this? If I say I don't want to do the verification process, how does that affect things? So if you decide that you don't want to do the verification process, I mean, that's fine. You don't have to do the verification process. But then at that point in time, the school will cease processing any type of financial aid for the student. So any type of federal aid, whether it be um, a grant, federal grant, uh, even federal loans, uh, any type of state aid, maybe even type of institutional need-based grants, the school will no longer consider, continue processing that, and the student won't be able to get any of those parts of the award until mm-hmm. the verification process is completed. But as you said, Ian, earlier, or asked earlier, it doesn't impact that recruitment-based scholarship. So if 
the family decides that they don't want to complete the process and they only have recruitment-based scholarships, then it should not impact the student getting that, again, you know, to be against their bill. Great. Great. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Beth, uh, for your time today. Uh, really appreciate your stopping by and pinch hitting. Thanks, Ian. Have a great day. You too. So one more big word of thanks to all my guests for bringing their expertise to the show, from Beth to Karen and Kelly. I learned a whole lot. hope that you did too. Um, next week, Beth Heaton returns to introduce listeners to Naviance, the program that most high schools use to help students work their way through the application process. I'm still not sure how to pronounce it exactly. Maybe it's Naviance. Not sure. Um, Beth will also talk with longtime guest Kathy Ruby about tuition reciprocity agreements, and she'll take some more of your questions. So please keep those questions coming. Once again, if you have a chance to review us on iTunes or fill out our survey, we greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the weekend, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.